Ready? Okay. Psalm 19. We'll finish it up tonight. I didn't anticipate having three messages out of this, but uh, the Lord's good. So uh, we talked about, as we started off in this chapter, what we called general revelation. Remember that? And that is what we see in nature. That's uh, what we see in the power of God. And when we look at general revelation, you look at the sun, you look at the stars at night, uh, you think about the order of everything, how the universe fits together, how it runs, how it is so um, predictable and repeatable on things that those same stars you looked at were used by uh, explorers like Columbus uh, back in 1492 when he sailed from Europe to the Americas and he could look at that sky and see the same things that we see with maybe some changes some stars may have died out but the major ones haven't and he was able to chart his course and stay on course which is amazing uh, to do that well we do the same things and we see the same planets and stars and and now with telescopes galaxies and all of that it's amazing so what does that tell us number one that there is a God and number two that he is very powerful now, you don't get much more than that when you look up and, and see those things. That's what is revealed. Now, is that enough to save you? No, you don't go to heaven just because you believe that there is a God. And you don't go to heaven because you believe that there is a powerful God who has designed everything. It's a good start, but uh, the Bible says that you have to repent and believe the gospel. And there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Well, nobody, as I said last week, looks up at the moon and says... Hey, I believe that there's a, a sacrifice that was made for me on the cross about 2,000 years ago, and I need to trust that uh, in order to be right with God. You don't get that from general revelation. So from that you need, and we moved in this psalm to what we call special revelation, and that is the Word of God, because it goes right into the law of the Lord is perfect, it's complete, converting the soul. You need the Word of God in order to get saved. And you need the gospel. You need to know what uh, God has revealed and what God has said about your sin and about his son and righteousness and all of those things that we sort of uh, have heard for so long we kind of take for granted. But can you imagine how wonderful that would be for you to hear that for the first time and to repent and believe the gospel? So now, having those two things, okay, God reveals himself through general revelation, read Romans, the first three chapters, and it'll tell you a little bit more about that. And then God has written his word so that we don't have to guess and we don't have to rely on somebody's dreams. You know, if, if everything you believed about God was based upon, let me tell you, I had a dream last night, this is what you need to know. Well, you never know if it was God or if it was pizza too late, right? You have no idea. And then the other thing you wouldn't know is, did I really dream that? I could be making that up. You ever heard of Joseph Smith? It could be all made up. It could be demonic. You know? There are doctrines of demons, the Bible says. Well, how does the doctrines of demons get into people's lives so that they teach them and preach them and lead people astray? I don't know, but it could be through a dream or a vision. It says that Satan and his demons appear as angels of light. I mean, they could trick you, they could trick me, and, uh, and say, oh, no, no, I'm not the devil, I'm Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Well, how do we know what Jesus looks like? Oh, well, we've seen all the pictures, right? 
And uh, who is that guy in those pictures? Uh, he doesn't look very Jewish to me. And he doesn't look like he lived in those times. And yet, normally when people say they see him, they're seeing a very similar thing to those European medieval paintings. So how do you know is my question. If we were going by that, you never know. It might not be Jesus. It might be the devil. That's what Paul was trying to tell us, right? And uh, then what if somebody comes supernaturally to you, an angel, you know, and they say, this is the way. Well, remember, Paul dealt with that. And he said, if we or even an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Well, then that tells me something. I need a way of measuring all of these things. I need a way of knowing whether they're right or wrong. You need a way of knowing whether I'm telling you the truth or if I'm just, you know, leading you astray, making up a bunch of stuff. You need to know. And so God was so kind to take his word and to write it down and to preserve it for us so that whether it is me or whether it's somebody like a Joseph Smith or somebody like that, you can look for yourself and you can read the word and go, mm, mm, mm. that's not what the Bible says. That's not right. And you can check it out. And for, uh, you know, what is it, coming up on 24 years now, I've been telling you, never, ever, ever take my word or any other preacher's word. You go to the word and you find out what they have to say. And if you've been saved any length of time, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and you are still having to say, well, so-and-so says, and so that's what I believe. You ought to be way past that. Now, you ought to be able to say, the Bible says. The Bible says. We want you to know the Word of God and to know it for yourself so that when some screwball person on TV, or even if it's me, um, you know whether it's right or wrong. So God has done that. So general revelation, specific revelation in his word. And now he's going to tell us tonight in these last few verses, we're going to go down to verse 11, what it is that the word of God specifically does for you and for me in our everyday life and in our walk with God. There's no other book that can do this for you. I don't care who wrote it. It may be your hero. It may be somebody who is perfectly sound in their faith and their doctrine and all of that. But their book still doesn't compare to the Bible. It may be your favorite Bible study or devotional author. And you say, oh, every time I read whatever they write, I just get so much out of it. Make sure that that doesn't replace the Word of God. Because there is no other book, no other writing, no preaching, nothing that is inspired by God in the way that the Word of God is. You need to feed on the Bible. Now, we already know from reading this psalm that the law of the Lord, which is one of the uh, terms used to describe the Bible, is perfect, and that means it's complete. You don't need anything else in addition to it. There's not another testament of Jesus Christ, as Mormons say. There's, there's not another vision of anything, like a lot of people say. And uh, a lot of charismatics get into this, and so do a lot of cults. And we've got to be careful. Even when you look back into Roman Catholicism, there's a lot of their theology that didn't come from the Bible, but it came from maybe a German nun's visions about things. 
And they took it and they declared it to be doctrine. And they believe all kinds of strange things. They take the simplicity of Christianity and, man, they complicate it a lot. And they did their best to try for, you know, a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, to keep common people like you and me from ever knowing the Bible so that we would have to rely upon the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops and the priests. And they would chain the Bible up so you couldn't have one of your own or take it home. And then they wanted to keep everything in Latin so nobody really understood it. Well, you can see the strategy there. That way you're never accountable. That way nobody ever challenges you. And that's why it was so monumental when a, a priest named Martin Luther in Germany had 95 complaints against the church that were based upon the Word of God. And he nailed it to the chapel door there in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, that was a game changer on everything. And that's why people um, have always tried to keep the Bible in a mysterious hidden language so that you don't understand it. And uh, people died. People were burned at the stake. William Tyndall and people like that for writing the Bible, translating it into English so that people that were English-speaking could actually read the Bible for themselves. Man, they had a fit over all of that. And so when you hold a Bible in your hand, think about the price that was paid for you to be able to have that Bible. First of all, uh, God is the one that gave it to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that. And Peter wrote about that. And uh, so we, we understand this is very special that God gave us his word. The other thing is to think about how much work did it take to take those letters of Peter and Paul and uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Revelation and those things. Somebody had to write those things. They didn't have copy machines back then, did they? You couldn't just scan it on your phone and, uh, you know, send it to somebody. They had to sit and write it by hand. I want you to think about how long that would take in the arduous task of copying the Word of God. And not only did they copy it, but they had people that would check it out every step of the way. I mean, they knew what word was at the center of a particular book. And so you've worked, and maybe you worked for months, copying Isaiah. And when you get through, you give it to someone, and you know what they're going to do? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Ah, the word that's in the middle of it, in the one you were copying from, is not the middle word on yours. You know what they would do? They didn't just erase it. They didn't cut and paste. They threw it away. They burned it. And you had to start all over. Any of you ever make any mistakes when you're trying to write down a message? Any of you ever make a mistake when you say, oh, that's a really good quote, and you try to write it down and try to remember it? I mean, my goodness, that's hard work. And people have done this for years and years with the Word of God, carefully checking it over, carefully making sure that everything was written down the way it was supposed to be. And then, not only that, but think about people who have translated it. Hebrew is hard. I know, because I took Hebrew, and I was so glad to get out of that class and uh, for a few years after it was over, I could still read it. I didn't know what it meant, but I could read it. And I could look it up and that type of thing. I've even lost that ability now because it's just hard. And um, uh, I can still read Greek, but, uh, you know, and that's mainly what I deal with, of course, in the New Testament. 
But Hebrew's difficult. Can you imagine all of those people that figured out what that ancient language was that was virtually a dead language until Israel was regathered in the 1940s, but um, they took that and they had to look at it and they had to translate it accurately into English and Spanish and German and you know all of these Hindi and all of these languages can you imagine you have the work of tremendous scholarship tremendous patience tremendous diligence in your hands and it's incredible and you know sometimes it gets a little frustrating because there are so many translations some of them are very good some of them are not very good and uh, it kind of gets a little annoying um, it's a little easier back in the days when everybody had the same translation. But at the same time, think about this. If there's ever any verse of Scripture you don't understand, what can you do? Well, look it up in about six translations. And if they all agree, well, then you're pretty solid. Okay, that must be what it means. If they disagree, well, now you can do your own homework and find out why did they translate it this way? What's the purpose in all of this? And you can do some of your own work as you do this and they're very good books but there are people that did all of this and some of them shed their blood in order for you and I to have all of the resources that we have and boy now with the internet it's just super easy to get some of this information and again you have to be careful because there's some nuts on the internet too if you haven't noticed uh, but there's also some very good information as well so what I'm saying is whatever you think about whenever the word of God is taught in Sunday school or preached in a service like this whenever you read it in your uh, quiet time or anything like that whenever you are reading a commentary on it and all of that you are getting the product of 2,000 years or more if it's the Old Testament of work and scholarship and translation and sometimes even people paying for that with their lives. We take it far too casual, don't we, whenever we do this. Okay? And so when you look through this particular psalm, it, it mentions the Bible being the law of the Lord. It talks about the statutes of the Lord. It talks about the precepts of the Lord. It talks about the commands of the Lord. And it talks about the ordinances of the Lord. These are all just synonyms that David used for the Bible, the Bible of that day, of course, which would have been uh, the Old Testament, at least most of it. Some of it hadn't been written yet when David wrote this. The law is the instructive part. The statutes tell us of the standard of conduct. This is right and this is wrong. The precept, precepts of the Lord, uh, that's like giving an order that is binding. This is something that you have to do or else, kind of like uh, April 15th, you know, better get your taxes in, that kind of thing. Um, the commands of the Lord, they're authoritative, they're non-optional things. You don't debate those, you don't discuss those things, you just do them. And the ordinances are like a Supreme Court decision. They're judicial, they're handed down from the Lord. Well, this is, uh, these are five things that describe the Bible. All of those things describe what you hold in your hand and what you read. And so this is not just as uh, Zig Ziglar used to say, when you read the Ten Commandments, they're not called the Ten Suggestions, right? They're the Ten Commandments. And uh, this is the way the, the Word of God is to be taken seriously as uh, though it came as a letter written by God Himself to you because that really is what it is. This is the Word of God. 
And uh, we've got to take it seriously like that. Well, what does this powerful word do for me? What does it do for me? It does something for me that creation never could, could do. It does something for me that you and I just sitting and talking could never do. We would never come up with any of this. It, it does something in our heart because the book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharp like a double-edged sword. And it is so sharp that it can uh, discern your thoughts and even your motives. It's an amazing, amazing book. And uh, think about how many people... Uh, throughout history have tried to disprove the Bible and they've not been able to do away with it. Think about how many times they uh, laugh and they say, that's so silly what that book says. It can't be regarded as history. And I've even had people ask me, is that the Bible or is that history? Well, the Bible is history, folks. And it's God's word about it. And you know what happens every time in the Middle East they dig up something? You know what happens? Ah, shoot. This proves what the Bible says, even by people who don't like the Bible. And archaeology has never one time ever cast any doubt on what the Bible says. It's like every time they turn a shovel over, they go, well, shoot. Here it is, just like the Bible says. We didn't think that that ever happened. Here it is. And uh, th this is an amazing, amazing book. And what does this powerful book do for you? Let's read about it. It says, moreover, verse 11... By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret sins or faults. And verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion or control over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great, uh, or maybe better to understand it as, uh, I shall be innocent of, of multitudinous sins, a great many sins or transgressions. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Wow, is that even possible? To think that my thoughts could be pleasing to God. To think that the words of my mouth could be pleasing to God. And, and let's just say this, at other times than when I'm at church. At other times than when I'm preaching or teaching Sunday school. At other times than when it's expected. Could it be possible that my thoughts could be pleasing to God 24 hours a day? And that my thoughts can control my mouth so that I don't gossip. I'm not negative, I'm not a slanderous person, or I'm not a misleading person, or I don't tell lies or uh, uh, innuendos or anything like that. What would it be like to have the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart be pleasing, be acceptable, to have God's stamp of approval on them? Now, that's a, that's a tall, tall order. And you know what David is saying? That it is through the revelation of God in nature, general revelation. It's through the specific revelation of the law of God when he tells us what's good, bad, right, and wrong, all of that. And all of the examples that we have. I mean, isn't it amazing that when God 
uh, gives us his word. He tells us about the faults of the people that are heroes in the Bible. I mean, man, if I were Moses, I would have left out the murder part, you know? And yet it's right there. If I were David, a hero of the Bible, second most mentioned name in the Bible is King David, I think I might have skipped over some things. Can you think of anything David might be a little embarrassed about? Yeah, just yeah, leave that out. We don't have to talk about that. Don't air the dirty laundry. Don't, you know, just be a hero. Be a king and point to God. But it doesn't do that. It exposes all of that because we find out that the heroes in the Bible, they were like us. Even the book of James says that Elijah, that great prophet who did so many miracles. I mean, don't get the idea that because you see miracles on every page of the Bible, that miracles just were so common they happened all the time. No, they didn't. Sometimes there were centuries in between this prophet and his miracles and then another one that shows up. In fact, between the Old and the New Testament, there were 400 years without a word from God. So when John the Baptist showed up, people went, whoa, who's this guy? 400 years is a long time. And so when you think about all of this and you look at the word of God, you, you are amazed because Elijah, James says, was a man of like, uh, King James says, passion, you know what that means? He had the same nature, the same likes and dislikes, struggled with sin, all of those things. He was a person just like us. And so was Moses, and so was David, and uh, all of those heroes that you find in the Bible. Now that's important because if we're not careful, we say, well, they're in the Bible. They were different. They weren't tempted like me. And they don't have the weaknesses that I have. And they didn't have the tendencies that I have. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And so we learn and we grow through all of these things. And so David is writing this and he said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, was David perfect at that? No. Because when he was on the rooftop of his palace and he saw Bathsheba, the thoughts in his heart were not pleasing to God at that point, were they? The words of his mouth... When he told his guards, go get her for me, that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because David is a person who's just like us. And uh, he is in process of becoming what God wants him to be. And uh, you and I are in process of becoming what God wants us to be. And how are we going to do this? Let's go back to uh, verse 11 and let's think about it. Moreover, by them, your servant, he's speaking of himself is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. So, number one tonight, the Word of God, the power of it, it warns and it rewards. Oh, if we would only believe that. If we would only really believe that even when you're tired, even when you're distracted, even when life is going wrong, there's still great reward in reading the Word of God and taking it in and ingesting the Word of God. It's always profitable, and every part of it is profitable. And God even put those pesky begat sections in there, you know? Why? Because he wants you to know them. He wants you to know them. And that is inspired by God as much as anything else. And um, then it talks about the warning part of this. Can you imagine later on, maybe David, after the Bathsheba thing, and after Nathan the prophet says, you are the man, and all of that, after the turmoil in his family from his own sin... Can you imagine David maybe reflecting back on Psalm 19 and said, Oh, if I'd only listened and if I'd only followed the word of God, I never would have done that. 
And you and I have those same type of things in our lives, those regrets. Sometimes when you're younger, the regrets don't seem all that big a deal. And yeah, I can handle it. It's not a big deal. And then later on, when you see the result of that sin in your life, what it actually does to you, what it does in your family, what it does in the church, what it does in the nation, you know, all of those things have an effect, don't they? And uh, we reap what we sow, the Bible says. And uh, then you look back and you say, oh, I wish I'd taken it more seriously. And I wish I'd listened to the warnings of Scripture and wish that I had diligently sought the reward that comes out of Scripture. Every time we sin, we make a judgment call. I think this is why in Ephesians, um, it tells us that we are to take up, in addition to all, the shield of faith. And that's what quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. Because I think every time you and I sin, we are actually making a choice. Do I believe God and what he said and heed his warnings and seek his blessing? Or do I believe the devil? Do I believe the tempter? Do I believe the powers of darkness as they're pulling me away? I mean, that's what Eve was doing when she was there at the tree talking to the serpent. She made a choice that I'm going to seek the blessing of the serpent instead of seeking the blessing of God. And look what it did. It seemed like an innocent enough thing. How could God be all that mad about eating fruit? You know, fruit's good for you, isn't it? And look at all the other trees with fruit. Why would this fruit be any worse than any other fruit? And it all boiled down to this, because God said, don't do it. And in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, keep in mind, they didn't really know what death was. How could they possibly have known anything like that? Well, here's where it boiled down to. Their shield of faith, just like yours and mine, they chose to believe the serpent instead of believing God. And you and I have got to believe God even when we don't understand God. Isn't that what we tell our children? I know when our children were little, I wanted them to be obedient. Because in my mind, I'm picturing Taylor when he's about two, running out of the yard into a street where cars are coming, and I go, stop! I wanted him to freeze. Okay? Because it would save his life. And then we could talk about why. Why can't I run into the street? Why do I have to do what you said? Well, then we've got a, a chance to talk. I'm, I wasn't against talking. It's just at that point, there was no time. That was not the time to negotiate or to reason with a two-year-old, was it? Wanted him to stop. Uh, a lot of my relatives in Arkansas had wood-burning stoves. And I uh, wanted Taylor, when he was little, I wanted him to know that when I told him something or his mama told him something that was hot, that was a serious thing. Because I could just picture him walking up by one of those stoves and maybe stumbling and falling and putting his hands out on it. I had a friend when I was in eighth grade. His name was Stan Brotherton. And uh, when he was a little kid living there in Germany, they had those little, little stoves and you know that kind of thing. And he was walking along and he fell and put his hands on two burners that were hot. And he had surgery on them. And you could see in eighth grade, 14, you could still see the scars and everything. And I wonder how that affects him today. And uh, I pictured that and thought about my child doing that. And I wanted them to know, you stop when mama or daddy says stop. Period. Because it's going to save your life. right? And I wanted them to know things like, that's hot. And uh, aren't you making a big deal and being kind of legalistic about it? No, I'm actually helping him. There's great reward in listening to when your mom or your dad say, that's hot, don't touch it. And I could hold up Stan Brotherton's hands and, and say, there's a reward in that. You won't be like this. Right? 
And on and on and on and on and on we go with that. The Word of God tells us not to have sex outside of marriage. Right? You know what that does for us? Well, it prevents unwanted pregnancies. Uh, it would cut down the abortion rate an awful lot, wouldn't it? Um, it would also mean that uh, maybe there's some sexually transmitted diseases that you don't get and you don't have to worry about. And uh, those kind of things that come on. There's also an awful lot of remorse and guilt. Um, I read when I was getting my degree that uh, psychologists believe that the very first person that you have a sexual encounter with, you will spend the rest of your life trying to recreate that bond. Well, you know what God's answer is? Bond with the person that you're going to live the rest of your life with. It's problem solved, right? You don't have to try recreating all of that or comparisons or all of that kind of stuff that's got us so messed up today. And so the Word of God, it warns us about certain things. You better not do this. But it also rewards us when we obey them. What a better life it is that you have if you will obey the Word of God in everything that it says and get to know those things and understand those things. And that's why there's a difference between knowing the work of God, that's the sunset, beautiful sunset tonight, red and all of that. That's the work of God. That's the work of God. But when you get into the Scripture and you start getting to know your Heavenly Father, you learn the ways of God. And at first it may seem like, well, He's awful restrictive. I mean, all these do not, do not, do not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You ever heard anybody talk about that? But as you begin to learn about God, and as you begin to apply His principles to life, you know what you find out? That's God protecting you. That's God preserving you. That's God giving you the opportunity to have a life you would never be able to have on your own. And it also gives you the opportunity to see a merciful God because all of us have broken those thou shalt nots to one degree or another. And we sometimes find ourselves going, you know, as I look back on my life, there are things that I've done that I, I maybe should be in prison right now. And I'm not. That's mercy. When you don't get what you deserve, that's mercy. And then to think that not only am I not in prison, not only am I not infected with some kind of horrible disease, not only am I living a life of horrible regret and messing up everything that I touch, God gives me the grace to where I've got some stability in my life. I've got some joy in my life. And I look at life and it's not always like I want it to be, is it for anybody? But let's also stop and think tonight and I'll just ask you the question. Your life may not be everything you want, but would you agree with me that outside of Christ and His Word, it could be a whole lot worse? Am I right about that? So there's a warning and there's a reward to this. And notice that it is not for anybody. It's for the servants of God. That's why the world doesn't care. And um, I just get tickled when I think of uh, my father-in-law preaching one time uh, where the, the Scripture says... Everyone that thirsts, let him come and drink of the waters of life. And this old person says, I ain't thirsty. And the Lord says, I'm not talking to you. He's talking to who? The thirsty. Who are these warnings and rewards for? They're not just for anybody. They're for God's kids. These are family secrets. These are things that the world scoffs at and laughs at. And yet they look and they say, I sure wish I had a life like yours. It's just, you're just lucky. 
No, the steps of the righteous are ordered of God, and he's taught us, and we've applied things, and we've died to the flesh, and we've obeyed what God says, and the blessings of life come upon us because of that. Are we perfect? No. Does that mean we don't have any storms or trials or anything like that? Absolutely not. But it does mean we have an anchor that holds while we go through those, right? And our anchor, as we've said before, it doesn't go down like a typical anchor. Ours goes up. And there it is, the book of Hebrews says, it is behind the veil. What is that song? Uh, My anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, that's it. On Christ the solid rock I stand. That's what they were making reference to. We have an anchor that goes up into heaven, into the holiest place, and we are anchored on the rock of Jesus Christ himself. Oh, man, that's amazing. And so it's no accident. It's not just because you're lucky. It's because you've obeyed the word of God. And you say, well, you know, look at all of this. Look what life could be. Yeah, you could look at that, and you could probably, like all of us, have some regrets, and you could have done some things better. But let's also think about this. It could be a whole lot worse as well. Okay, number two. We'll hurry along. It frees us from sinful strongholds. And this comes down to verse 12. Who can understand his errors? I don't until after... I've messed up. And sometimes then even I don't see them. And that's why I can be reading the Bible, even at my advanced age, even after all these years. And sometimes I'll read something that I've read a thousand times. You've done this too. And all of a sudden you look and it just goes, oh, I've never really noticed that before. That's an area I need to work on. That's an area I need to die to self and live to Christ on. There's a sin area that I need to confess. And it's amazing how you see it. And you can read through the Bible. Some of you do it once a year. And uh, you've been doing that for decades now. And yet uh, you'll be reading it in the morning. And you're going to read a passage of scripture you've read all those times. You've heard sermons on it. You've read devotionals on it. And all of a sudden... That verse just jumps up off the page and it grabs a hold of your heart. Anybody say amen to that? See, this is God as he teaches you and as he shows you. Because why doesn't God show you some things 10 years ago? You probably couldn't handle it and you would have squandered it. So he just says, not yet, not yet. That's for later, that's for later. It's the same reason you don't give grandma's Uh, six-carat diamond ring to your two-year-old to play with. Right? You got one of those? I'm looking to see, mm -hmm, like that. Okay, you you ought to be tithing more. But, uh, just a joke. But you know what I'm saying? You don't do that. You don't do that. You don't give it to your teenager, probably. You give it to them when they're going to value it and when they're going to treasure it. And so God knows where you are in your life. And the truth of the matter is, some of you could say amen to this, that you treasure God's word more now than you did when you were first saved. Is that an amen? Now, you may have been hungrier for it when you were first saved. You know, little babies, they eat, and they eat a lot, and they eat many times a day. And the Bible says we're to be like newborn babes after the milk of the word, right? Well, um, I don't eat as much as an infant eats in terms of 
volume to body weight and the norm number of times a day and all of that and part of that is because I have graduated to solid food it, it just kind of stays with you a little longer doesn't it and and you can do more with it and you've got to advance so I don't eat as much uh, as many times as I used to and um, you know Sammy's really grateful that whenever I get hungry I don't burst into tears too um, you know that kind of thing so it's different as you grow your appetite is a little bit different but it's a better appetite and it's more solid I don't need to eat you know 25 million times a day and wake up in the middle of the night Sammy I'm hungry three in the morning my three o'clock feeding you know when she has to go and make waffles or something like that right wouldn't that be horrible nobody would ever marry us guys if they had to do that kind of stuff for us Okay, I can sleep all night now without eating. I can do pretty good, pretty good on that. Well, it's because of what I eat. Now, that's the same thing. You ought to be hungrier for the Word probably than you are. Yeah, I think we all could be more, have a better appetite for the Word of God. Okay? But here's the thing. Even though you are older and even though you may not be quite as ravenous for the Word as you were when you first got saved, you couldn't put it down then. But the things that God reveals to you through his word now are more solid, more life-changing, and they last a little longer. Some of that stuff when you first say was a stirring of emotions. I'm not saying that's bad. I don't mind having emotions stirred. But that doesn't last very long. But now you're at the point where there's something you can say, well, there's something bothering me. I don't understand this. And maybe you talk to somebody that you respect and say, help me understand this. And they explain what they know. And you go back and you pray on it a little more. And you read a couple of books about it. And you pray on it a little more. And you go on and on. And then finally you go, Eureka, I got it. And you've never forgotten it. And it's changed your life. And that little nugget was something that gave you something that all of those other years and all of the milk of the word never could. And what is that called? It's called growth. It's called sanctification. And so it frees us from sinful strongholds because it reveals our errors, doesn't it? Now notice here he says, cleanse me from my, uh, some translations say secret sins. Uh, mine says secret faults. And as I look that up, what David was talking about, there are some times that you sin and you didn't even mean to. You just kind of stepped in it. The enemy laid a trap for you and you fell into it. And sometimes it may be a sin that you're embarrassed about. You keep it hidden. You keep it secret. You don't really get any, uh, any help or counsel from it because, boy, it's just a, a, an awful thing. It's inside of you. Cleanse me from my secret sins. Cleanse me from those things I didn't even know were, were going to be wrong or were going to be bad. Uh, did you know that in the Old Testament there was a sacrifice for sins of ignorance? So sometimes you just you, you didn't know. You just didn't know. And David is saying, I want to be cleansed even from that type of thing, even from the uh, sins that I stumbled into or sins that no one else sees, sins that don't really hurt my testimony or anything like that. I want you to deal with everything that's on the inside. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. What is a presumptuous sin? That is a sin that you know better than to commit and you do it anyway. You do it anyway. Well, I know I ought not do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, David said, keep me back from that kind of thing. 
Keep me away from those kind of sins. Don't let me be the belligerent toddler that says, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Because, boy, that gets you into a lot of trouble. And he said, let them not have dominion over me. I don't want to be controlled by my sin. I don't want to be controlled by my lust. I don't want to be controlled by my greed. I don't want to be controlled by my anger. I don't want to be controlled by any of those things. I don't want them to have dominion over me. And then he says, then I shall be blameless. Blameless. And I shall be innocent of great transgression. You know how to keep from sinning a lot of sins and big scandalous sins? Control them while they're still on the inside. Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. He was not saying, thinking it is just as bad as doing it, so if you're going to think it, you might as well do it. I've heard people say that. That's ridiculous. You know what Jesus is saying? Control them while they're still in here before they get out there. Control them while it's just a thought. Control it while it's just a motive. And you know how that happens? Because the Word of God exposes all of that. And only God can grow us up, teach us, and keep us out of all of those kind of things. And that's really what we want. Number three, it challenges and changes the heart that the words of my mouth... Well, there would be a, a big step forward if we could just control our tongue. James wrote a lot about that in his epistle. That's hard to do. How do I control my tongue? How do I keep myself from saying things I shouldn't say? Doesn't always mean cussing. I mean, that's a good start. Just quit using foul language. But maybe he's talking about more than that. Maybe he's talking about those times when we just blurted something out without thinking and we hurt somebody. We didn't intend to. We didn't even plan it. We just blurted it out. And as soon as it was coming out of our mouth, it's kind of like, you know, when you uh, send that text message and as soon as you hit send, you go, uh-oh, I shouldn't have done that. You can't get them back. Words hurt. Words hurt. Uh, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Bones heal. Sometimes words don't. I would imagine I could take anybody in here who's, uh, oh, let's take really, really old people, 50 and up. And probably all of you can tell me what is the most hurtful thing your dad ever said to you. And you can remember it. You may have been eight years old, which would be like decades ago. But you can still remember it as clear as a bell. You even remember how it felt. And you even remember what the temperature was like that day and all of that. We all have those things because words hurt. You know, if the words of my mouth could be acceptable to God, would I ever gossip? No. Would I ever expose somebody's sin and shame for no reason or just cause? No, I wouldn't do that. I'd go to them. Would I ever tell a lie? No. Would I ever mislead? No. Would I ever pretend to be something that I'm not? No. Would I ever exaggerate anything that, you know, did happen, but kind of, you know, I'm embellishing a little bit? No. That would be a good start. But I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Neither have you. Because David knew the thing, let the words of my mouth... Well, this thing right here in, the, in, in, in this part of my face that, that just goes on too long is tied to my heart, the real me. And that's why Paul said, 
in Romans chapter 3, when he's talking about the lost world, he said their mouths are full of cursing, that's their mouth, and bitterness, that's the heart. So when the heart is bitter, the mouth curses. See, pardon my French. No, why don't you get your heart right? Then your language will clear up. See? And so whenever your heart is right, then your words will be right. And David knew that. And that's why he said, you need to have the Lord work on your heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So sometimes, even if we are real good about controlling ourselves, when we're in the right place and around the right people, God looks upon the heart, doesn't he? And the real key is getting your heart right. Which brings us down then to this fourth thing, and we'll be finished with Psalm 19. That the word of God is powerful because it focuses uh, us on the source of our strength. That last thing, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You know, there's nothing in here that says, just try harder. Just try harder. You've tried hard, and you've tried harder, and you fell flat on your face. That's why you need the Lord to be your strength. You need the Lord to be your redeemer. You need to be dependent upon him for everything that you do. There's nothing in here that says try a little bit harder. There's a whole lot in the Bible that says trust more. Trust more. Surrender more. Yield more. Yield more to the Lord. And sometimes we forget that. We think that God is uh, up in heaven saying, Oh, if only these people at Graceway would do more for me, then I could do more. Well, that's not much of a God. What it really is, is God looking down and saying, Oh, if my people at Graceway would just surrender to me more, I would do great and mighty things in them, and I would do great and mighty things through them because I am their strength, and I am their redeemer. And so how do you handle the tragedies of life in the strength of the Lord, right? How is it that you handle the sins that you commit and that other people commit against you? You remember that he's the redeemer. And you remember that if he can have mercy and grace toward me, he can do that toward anybody. Uh, why is it that we want to be witnesses for Christ? Because that's what we think on in our heart. People need to know the Lord. I'm an ambassador for Christ. Why am I here? And why has he put me in the situations I'm in and with the people that I'm in? And how in the world can I ever do this? This is Moses. By the burning bush. And the Lord said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses goes, you got to be kidding me. I don't, I, don't, I don't do very well at public speaking. You know, in the New Testament, it says that Moses was mighty in speech. Moses was copping out. You know why? Because in the, Moses had learned in his own strength, he can't deliver anybody. In his own strength, he has to run for his life. But when the Lord says, you go and tell him that I am has sent you, now we've got some power. Now we've got some power. And whenever you think about everything you have to deal with in this world and in your life, you need the Lord to be your strength. That's power. And then you need Him to be your Redeemer because you're not going to do it perfectly and other people are not going to live life perfectly and we all need a Redeemer. And that ought to cause us to look at the world differently. You know why people are so rotten out there? Well, you don't have to look very far. Look in your own heart and you see the same things.
right? And when you look at them, you say, what Jesus did for me, he can do for them. And when you go out there in the strength of the Lord and resist temptation, you fight the enemy, you fight the right enemy, not flesh and blood. And then when you also are able to share the goodness and the grace of God in the power of God, because your meditations in your heart and the words of your mouth are acceptable to the Lord. Oh my goodness, there is power in that. And that's ever, ever what we need. So, there you have it. General revelation. Yeah, there must be a God. Whew, he must be really powerful. The special revelation. Now we know who this God is. And now we know what he has done. Now we know what he expects. Now we know that we've broken his law. Now we know that he, in his mercy and grace, sent his perfect son to live the life we could never live and to die the death we could never die to pay for our sins in full and rise from the dead and be and conquer death, hell, and the grave, and be seated at the right hand of God the Father to intercede for us and to advocate for us. Woo, that's amazing. That's what this book tells you. And then it tells you that as you will take this and apply it, what will happen? God will start freeing you from sin. God will start freeing you from your own stupidity. God will free you and give you discernment so that you know when people are leading you astray to the very point that even your thoughts in your mind, in your heart, that result in words could all be acceptable to God. And if only we could think like that and speak like that, how are we going to do it? Well, it's not try harder. It is turn to the Lord and surrender to Him because He is your strength and He is your Redeemer. And He loves you with an everlasting love and He knows how to handle every situation that you find yourself in and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I don't know how to live the Christian life, but Jesus does. So if he can live it through me, I'm okay. okay. I don't know how to face sorrow and heartache, but if I ever have to face it more than I have right now, I don't just rely upon what I've done before or what I've seen other people do. That can help, but here's the deal. Jesus knows exactly how to handle it in my life. It's all a matter of just surrendering to him. Can we pray about that? Lord, as we think about this and what you call us to be living sacrifices, there's no more surrender than that. And as we uh, do what Paul said, we consider ourselves as dead men and uh, dying to self and dying to our ambitions and dying to pleasure and dying to temptation, all of those kind of things, but living to you and you living through us. That's what the Word of God teaches us. And so we look and we see the beauty of the heavens and the intricacies of the way that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. When we look around and we see the way nature fits together, the environment fits together. Oh, it's amazing how you've created the world, created us, and created the universe. Thank you for that. But even more, thank you for what your word tells us. There's a lot we don't understand, but we've got far more than we could ever really understand that's revealed to us in your word. If we would just work on those things. And then to think that as we do that, your spirit works on us and changes our heart. It changes our thoughts. It even changes what comes out of our mouth. Oh, Lord, that we, from head to toe, could be acceptable in your sight. Now, we've tried, and we've made promises, and we failed miserably. But you never fail. So we surrender to you our entire being. You are our strength. So I never run out of gas. I never run out of power. Always have everything that I need because I have you. And then you are my redeemer. 
Because in those times like David where I could write and say words like this and then turn around and do what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. How in the world can that happen? Because David needed a redeemer just like we do. And thank you, thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being gracious. And let us share that story with other people as we go throughout life. And let others see Jesus in us, please. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.